Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Bill Schlegel, professor and co-founder of the Master's University Extension Program in Israel, was studying the phrase, Son of God, and came to understand the term did not correlate with the traditional God the Son teaching, but instead meant God's heir, the king he has designated to rule the world. Although he had taught the Bible faithfully in Israel for more than two decades, he knew that this discovery would cost him dearly. In the end, he lost his job at the institution he founded, as well as any opportunity to preach and lead the church he helped to start. He's been maligned by many who used to regard him as a brother and blackballed in the evangelical world. Why in the world would Professor Schlegel go through all of this? Why wouldn't he just sign the statement of faith for another year and carry on his work? He had discovered a truth so profound, so irrefutable, that he could not hide it under a basket. He had to let it shine, even if it cost him everything. This is his story. Here now is interview 31, Master's Seminary Professor Finds Son of God Loses Job with Bill Schlegel. So Bill, thanks for taking some time out to talk today. Absolutely. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your story. Uh, what in the world brings you to Israel and why have you been there so long? Yeah, well, I came here actually 34 years ago, maybe 1984. That was just after I graduated from college. I went to a small Christian college in San Diego, California. Reading the Bible in that college got me interested in the reality of the land of the Bible. Hebrew language I was intrigued by. I wanted to learn Hebrew. So after I graduated, I came over and I wanted to live here. I wanted to find a job, learn Hebrew throw caution to the wind kind of thing. So you can do that sort of thing when you're single, and even back then, 30 years ago, it's a little bit different than now. Uh, now traveling is a little more complicated, and they, you know, you got to get visas for limited time periods and this kind of thing, but uh, it wasn't that way so much when I first came. So, Wow. So you graduated from school, and you said, I want to move to Israel and just have the immersion experience, huh? That's true, Yes. I think there's a certain apologetic sense drawing me, and that is, if it's a real place, then if these are real events, real historical events, then visiting the place adds to that reality, in a sense. And I felt that. I feel that our faith is based on history, and the history is integrally connected with the geography so once you see the geography, you can actually understand the history, I think, better, remember the history better. Uh, I like to say that the Bible is very geographically detailed. There are hundreds of biblical geographical references, even thousands of geographical references in the Bible. And those geographical references are very exact. Let's put it that way. Uh, I, there's people that deny the integrity of the scriptures for historical reasons. Somebody may deny that Abraham existed or that 
uh, Joshua is a real person. Because you can deny the history if you want, right? We're, the history is gone in a sense. Right. There are people that deny the integrity of the scriptures as they interpret the archaeology. We have archaeological evidences, site locations. You can go to a Jericho and dig up a site and see the ruins of the site, or a Gezer built by Solomon and find the ruins of the site, and you interpret the archaeological finds to see if you agree that they line up with the, the biblical record or not. Joshua, is there evidence of Joshua destroying the city of Jericho? Well, archaeologists actually uh, differ on their interpretation of the evidence. Some archaeologists would say, no, uh, there was no city in Jericho in Joshua's time. Other archaeologists say, no, actually, no, we have evidence. So there are people that will doubt the integrity of the scripture as they interpret the archaeological evidence. And I've found that it's usually the presupposition that a person's coming to the evidence that will determine if they find what they want or not. Now, I have never met anybody who doubts the integrity of the scriptures because of geographical reasons. The Bible's geography is exact. Everybody that comes to the text realizes that the Bible knows geography much better than any of us today. We all realize that, in a sense, we are ignorant, right? There's site names, there's locations, there's geographical features in the Bible that are very, very exact. And there's so much that we don't know. We know that the Bible understands it better, understands the geography better than we do. If it's a site location, it's an old city, name was here, we'll say a spot, an event associated with it. Everybody will understand that the Bible has it right. Okay, They don't doubt the integrity of the scriptures from a geographical perspective. They understand that it's very exact. And I think that's important. Yeah. I, because geography is something you can go and look at today. There might be a little bit of interpretation involved here and there, but it's not like you can deny the history because it's not here anymore. You can interpret the archaeology because it's an interpretation of the evidence. But the geography, it's here. It's still sitting there, right? We can go look at the border of Judah and Benjamin, you can see the site names from this place to this place, right? From the waters of Niftoach to the cities on Mount Hephron to Kiryat Jarim to Mount Seir, crossing over to Kesselon, down to Beth Shemesh. These places are still here. Right. This is what drew you to the land, and it's something that you've really delved into. Didn't you even have a book on geography? I've written a book called the Satellite Bible Atlas. It's the the intention is to connect the historical events with the geographical locations. I have studied Bible geography. I know it fairly well. Not to say there's not a lot more to learn. I, I basically know what geographical features maybe to highlight with a certain kind of a color to bring it out a little bit in the map. So the, yeah, it's not just the straight NASA data. It's touched up a little bit here and there to enhance it, I guess you could say. And then the graphics of the biblical event are laid on top of that base satellite map. Very good. I'm very interested in this whole topic. I know that's not our main topic for today because I am going to Israel this September for the first time. Oh, wow. Fantastic. So I am Great. Uh, planning on getting immersed in the geography myself mm -hmm. and uh, really seeing the, the, the land come alive. That's not really our main topic for today. Today, we want to talk about your, your recent development and understanding of the Son of God. Now, I, I watched this YouTube video of yours where it was 
translated into Hebrew. So it took a while mm-hmm. to get to get to the point there. But it seems That's like true. it seems like twice were, as long. Yeah, twice as long. It seemed like you were saying that the Son of God has nothing to do with the physical matter of what Jesus is, but rather to do with his relationship or status with the Father. Could you unpack that a little bit? This is a title that does not necessarily deal with essence. This has been the the big argument through church history is the essence of Jesus the Son. We can understand what Son of God means by looking in the Old Testament. We don't have to try to define it ourselves. We don't have to have philosophical discussions, really, agonizing over what the term or title, name, Son of God means, because it's in the Old Testament. And it's very clear what the title means in the Old Testament. It means this is the designated king. Uh, among others, there are, there's, there's more than just that. But I would say perhaps the most important title, especially as it relates to Jesus, but not again, not only there, for instance, Israel, the nation of Israel is called God's firstborn son. Right. Okay, so Israel is not divine in essence, even though they are called in the Bible the firstborn son. Okay, so right away that should give us a clue that there's human beings that can be called the son or sons of God. Now, this title especially relates to the Davidic monarchy, the line of kings that was started by God with David. God said to David that one of your descendants will be king, and I will be his father, and he will be my son. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we see that terminology again really, really focused to the designated king that God chooses. Now, of course, it's gonna the title means something. I think it means several different things. The the intimacy involved, the relationship involved. But it also carries a heavy has a heavy connotation of heir. This person is the heir, H E I R. He's going to inherit the territory of the Father, of God, specifically with the people of the descendants of David. This is the land of Israel. But it looks forward to the greater inheritance of the age to come, the world to come in the Jewish mindset. The Lord is designating a king who is the ruler of the kings of the earth, as the book of Revelation calls Jesus. The Son of God, therefore, is the heir of God's property. So we have that title mentioned in a number of places in the Old Testament, that really reveals to us what it is. Psalm chapter 2, we see it again. The Lord says to the Messiah, right, the anointed one, God was selected. He's also, he's called the Messiah. He's called the King. And in Psalm chapter 2, he says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this title, and of course it's more than just a title, means something, but it is given to the descendant of David who God selects as king. I just reading uh, this morning. If I correctly recall, be First Chronicles, uh, you're going to have to check me on this reference, uh, 29, where David is saying, I have had many sons, but the Lord has selected one of my sons to be the next king. 
he has selected Solomon. Right. It's the Lord said, Solomon is my son. I am his father. Okay, so here you see the terminology again. This is God's selection of the descendant of David, who is to be the king, is called the son of God. Now we can see this in other places, Psalm 89. This king, this descendant of David, will say, you are to God. He'll say, you are my rock. You are my God. Tsuri, Eli, you are my rock. You are my God. So the son of God, the descendant of David, calls God his father. He, calls, he has a God. Okay? So the pattern, I would say, the paradigm and the definition of who and what the son of God is there for us in the Old Testament. I believe that what happened is when the leadership of the believers in Jesus, starting probably in the second century AD and following, the leadership of the believers in Jesus were not Jews so much anymore. So now, basically Greek, philosophically thinking Gentiles recreate the idea, or they try to define what Son of God means in the Bible. Unfortunately, they didn't go enough to the Old Testament. You see, if there is one thing that is very convincing that Jesus is Messiah, is the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you don't have continuity between the God of the Old Testament and whoever you think the God is of the New Testament, you're wrong, okay? The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. There is continuity. This is the plan of God. He is revealed to us who he is. And he's revealed to us the, the nature of how he's ruling on this earth and, and who will rule in his stead, you might say. Yeah. Because God says, I'm going to designate a king. Matter of fact, David and Solomon, the language is in the Old Testament, that they sit on the throne of God. Right? It's God's throne, but God selects a human to sit on that throne as his representative ruler. That's the pattern in the Old Testament. Don't make up something different for the, the king that's going to come for the New Testament. This is the yeah. same God. For your understanding here, has this been something that's changed over time? I mean, did, did you subscribe to the Trinity doctrine at one point? Yes. Yeah, I can see when I look at my past notes and these kind of things that I did. Okay, so yep. how did that change for you? Well, it's been a somewhat recent development, that's for sure. I have to actually give thanks to Nathaniel in the book of John, chapter 1, where on the very first day that he saw Jesus, he said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Nathaniel's words to me put up a flag somehow, because most evangelical Western Christians, when they hear the title Son of God, they think in their brains, in our brains, I would say, God the Son, right? Yes, they, yeah, we, that's we, we think God the Son. So we think that he is calling Jesus God. And Nathaniel, seeing Jesus on the very first day, mixing in words like rabbi and king of Israel with the Son of God, that is the first time I start to think, you know what? What does this, what did he mean? What did Nathaniel, was he really... Seeing Jesus for the first time and say, you're God in the flesh, you know, co-equal with the Father from eternity in the past. 
Is that what Nathaniel was saying? And I came to understand then, you know what? We have a definition of Son of God from the Bible, just like we've kind of gone through here quickly. That's what Nathaniel meant. He knew exactly what he was saying. He was acknowledging that Jesus, a rabbi, teacher as well, is the king of Israel and this designated son of God, descendant of David, who God is selecting to put on the throne and rule this earth. That's how, what Nathaniel... I love how integrated your Christology is. I mean, it's just, it's so great to see that term, son of God, brought right back into its its original biblical flavor of the whole idea of the one who rules on God's throne. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to looking at it, I mean, I think you can look at it biologically in a sense that, like, you know, he is he is from God and God is his source and all that kind of thing, uh, like you see in like, maybe like Luke one thirty five. Uh, but right before Luke one thirty five, we have Luke one twenty eight to thirty one, where the angel says he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And he will rule on the throne of David and over Jacob forever. So, hmm. I mean, it's always right there lurking, the, the messianic flavor of that term. So when you discovered mm-hmm. this, I mean, what did you even do? You're not even allowed to think these kinds of thoughts and be sort of like accepted in evangelicalism today, right? Yeah, but like I say, it's been somewhat recent. And now I, I studied, right? And one of the things that myself and many other people are going to insist is that our authority ultimately is the scriptures. So I went to the scriptures, studied the scriptures, and for a while I would say that I had the idea that, and I I just was talking to a friend yesterday that currently holds this situation. So then once I realized that Son of God is the title for the descendant of David who God selects and anoints to be his king, then I said, well, you know what? The Son of Man is this figure that appears back in the book of Daniel chapter 7 with the Ancient of Days. And he come, he's, in, he's seen in heaven, in a sense. And he's given authority to rule by the Ancient of Days. So then I think, well, okay, the Son of Man is actually more of a divine figure. And that's ironically bringing, I say ironically because you have the name Man right in there, Son of Man, Ben Adam, right, Son of Man. But because of this vision in Daniel, then I said, well, okay, Son of God may be actually designating a human king, but Son of Man is this heavenly figure. That's the divinity of Jesus. Okay, so this is what I thought for a while. Now I realize that that was incorrect. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like the whole point of the phrase Son of Man is to say that he's a human. Mm -hmm. Especially in contrast to the beasts of chapter 7 there that come out of the sea. Exactly. And this is the humane kingdom, <laughs> as opposed mm-hmm. to the, the beastly, terrifying, power-hungry the em- kingdoms. The empires of the world, right? These are represented by beasts. And the Lord will instead have his earth ruled by a man. This was his original intention yeah. in the book of Genesis. Psalm chapter 8 picks up on this. What is man? You are mindful of him. But you've crowned him with glory and honor. He will rule over everything that is on the earth. This was originally the intention for God, and he's not going to give up on it. He's obviously not. It's going to be fulfilled in Jesus. He is the fullness of God's plan for us as to be the ruler over God's uh, material world. It's interesting, too, if you look up the phrase Son of Man, which you've probably already done, 
you've got in the in the Hebrew Bible you've got 107 hits, and uh, the the lion's share of them are in Ezekiel, of course. Ezekiel, where, yeah, yeah, God's re- repeatedly mm-hmm. referring to Ezekiel as "O oh, son of man," and yeah. there, there's no question among commentators that this is emphasizing his humanity, his mortality, mm-hmm. over against who uh, God is. And then, of course, the classic text on on this uh, this phrase in other than Daniel and Ezekiel is Numbers twenty three nineteen, which says, "God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind." Now, of course, the emphasis there is on God's character as a truth teller, but uh, nobody seems to have a problem with this line: "God is not a man, nor a son of man." Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, Son of man seems to indicate what God is not, as opposed to what God is, even though you're right. I mean, I've heard that over and over, that people, not just you, but others, are coming to see that Son of God identifies the Davidic descendant, whereas Mm -hmm. Son of man is this heavenly figure. But just because a figure is in heaven does not mean Mm -hmm. that he is non-human, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, like you said, I think there's the direct contrast between these beasts that I understand them to represent the empirical kingdoms of mankind. And instead comes a human, a human being, son of man, and the Lord gives him the kingdom. Right. So let me ask you this. What, uh, what happened next for you after you adjusted your understanding of son of man? Well, honestly, I don't exactly remember the whole process, but it involves, again, a continuation of the study of the scriptures then I have in my mind all these kind of proof texts from the Trinitarian perspective, Philippians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 1, a handful of verses from the Gospel of John, here and there another verse. And so I say, okay, how can this be, right? If I'm understanding that the King Messiah that the Lord designates is actually a human being who is exalted by God. What, what happened to Philippians chapter 2 of God setting aside his divine attributes and becoming a human being and these kind of things. So I went and looked at those passages, and I, I see they can be understood better in a different light. Let's put it that way, in short. Sometimes there's translation issues, sometimes there's biases in words that are chosen, etc., etc. Of course, it's not a, a simple study. It certainly isn't. But it can, it's not to say that it's necessarily so esoteric. Uh, the average believer can understand it, right? There's better ways to understand Philippians chapter 2 than the Trinitarian bias that's brought to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, you want to believe whatever it is the Bible's teaching. That's the bottom line. And it, that's important to say that the Scriptures are our authority. That's very important because, look, if somebody tells you you're not a believer, but you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he was put to death for the forgiveness of our sins, raised by the power of God, and you believe that, and somebody tells you you're not a believer, they're wrong. Why? Because we have the biblical text very clearly spelled out that whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God. Okay, so now you have the authority, the scriptural authority or man's opinion. Which do you go with? Do you follow man's opinion? Absolutely not. I wanted to mention this quote by Christopher Kaiser. He says, Belief in the deity of Christ has traditionally been the keystone of the doctrine of the Trinity. Yet, explicit references to Jesus as God in the New Testament are very few, 
and even those few are generally plagued with uncertainties of either text or interpretation. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a statement by somebody on the inside, somebody that believes Jesus is God in a Trinitarian way, and yet he's admitting that these allegedly clear verses are not so clear after all. They, they're all mm-hmm. suspect to interpretation and so on. Of course, you're familiar with 1 John 5, 7 through 8, the comma Jehanium there, where in the King James Version, we had the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost inserted in, whereas the earlier manuscripts that we discovered later, ironically, do not contain this phrase. And when, mm-hmm. I, when I see that, I think to myself, well, okay, somebody somewhere put these words into the Bible. I mean, mm-hmm. Because that, of theological bias, yeah. That is the exact opposite of what you just articulated. You said mm-hmm. that we, we need to hold the Bible as the authority, not our theology as the authority. And if we're going to conform something, it should be our theology to the Bible, not the Bible to our theology. Absolutely. Seeing this kind of chicanery indicates that the Bible's not doing a good enough job teaching the Trinity. If it were, nobody Need some would. help. <laughs> yeah, why would need, you help it? Need some help, yeah. So what has the uh, reception been as you've sort of come out of the closet here on your beliefs and other people have found out? There's been different reactions, I would say. Of course, the, the school that I was teaching for, I told them that I'm not going to be able to continue because I cannot affirm the doctrinal statement. And it, it caused a stir. Uh, you know, emotions are, were hot at first, and, you know, they still are. I guess you'd say it's still kind of an open sore and this kind of thing. But I, I think as time goes on, uh, emotions will settle a little bit. And, you know, the school that I work for, I, I keep saying, they put up all the money and the efforts and so forth to have a program in Israel. So all, you know, we have a phrase in Hebrew, kol kavod, all the honor in a sense. Uh, they were. They see the value of bringing students when they have the time, theoretically the financial resources, uh, to be able to come and study the Bible in the land of the Bible. So they're to be congratulated uh, for having this program and so forth. So um, the more the merrier. May there be 10,000 more prophets and more schools that would do such a thing because it gives people a, uh, again, a sort of a, you can gain confidence in the scriptures by coming here. And uh, so I'll, I congratulate them for the, the years that they've supported the Israel Bible Extension Program. Now, the reception here in Israel is different because the, there is the Hebraic understanding. And, and, you know, right away, you'll have people that will disagree with you, of course, because the Messianic faith is basically dependent on evangelicals from the West in the last hundred years. The Messianic Jewish believers in Israel have paralleled the reestablishment of the state of Israel. And so most of the influences come from the West, which is Trinitarian in doctrine. But there's more of a variety here. The Messianic believers I know, most of them would say they don't believe in the Trinity. Oh, really? Okay, they, yes. They know there's problems with it. They, they're, they're, or at least they're, they're hesitant to affirm the idea of the Trinity. Okay? I, I, don't, I don't know the percentages, but my guess is, look, even I heard a lecture not so long ago, U.S. evangelicals, that 
you know, the, the idea of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is, to say he's a person of the Godhead, people are, are more hesitant to do that. And the, that's part of the problem here as well. You, you're going to have varying opinions on if there really is this uh, three-in-one kind of God that is the God of the scriptures. All right, so they're here there's more variance, I would say. Now, I've been an elder, teaching elder of a congregation for the last 18 years. I was actually in on the start of the congregation. And it's been Trinitarian, right? At least basically, right? Even though among our elders, you ask, let's say we've got six, seven elders, you ask them, do you believe in the Trinity? More than half, I would say, is mm, they're not going to commit on that. Wow. Right? But having said that, now the deity of Jesus is an issue, right? And so I'm, I'm resigning in a sense. I knew that we had a nice meeting and, and I'm not going to have any participation now in the teaching and so forth. Okay, this is the way it is. It's uh, the Lord's time for everything, and I, I want to be a faithful witness, and I'm having lots of discussions with people, people uh, both by internet and email and personal visits and et cetera, et cetera. But it's, for sure, it's also been a, a change here. It's very recent, so word is only kind of getting out. Right. Sounds like this is just absolutely huge in your life. I mean, you came to change your beliefs on the very identity of Jesus. And then how did it go down with the job? Like, are you still f functioning as a teacher at the... Israel? No. Okay. So no. You, you immediately resigned or you, after studying for a year, reluctantly resigned? Or how did that work? What happened was, somewhat recently, as we needed to plan for the fall semester, I knew I wasn't going to be returning. Right, the contracts are signed basically about now. And I knew I wasn't going to be returning, so I made that known. And I've been working with these people for, you know, friends for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, etc. And they've already understand there are some things with the doctrinal statement that I didn't agree with. And I agreed not to teach against the doctrinal statement of the institution I was working for. That's been happening for the 20 years. So I, I was naive, I guess you could say. I did not want to disrupt the semester. But because of, I think, personal relationship, and maybe it could say even personal trust, I decided, okay, I will let them know why I'm not going to sign the doctrinal statement again. Humanly speaking, I guess you could say maybe that was a mistake because my, the personal trust and friendships and all these kind of things didn't make any difference in the end, right? When wow. at first with the people that are were directly involved, okay, we'll finish the semester. I'm not going to teach against the doctrinal statement, et cetera, et cetera. Even the American director of the program, I talked to him, finish the semester. I'm not going to teach against the college's doctrinal statement. We'll finish it up and then they can do something different. But that went up the chain of the administration. To people that don't know me as well, fair to say, and no, that very quickly the decision was uh, that I would be terminated then. So that's the way it went. You know, I, like I say, humanly speaking, maybe I should have just said, like, I'm leaving. Let's find somebody different to take my place for the fall semester. But, you know, even in all this, I can see the Lord's sovereignty. It's helped focus my own, my wife and I, my family's decision where we should be, where we can go. It's been a very much of a learning experience for me. It hasn't been simple, 
it's I would say it's actually kind of the first time that I felt somebody calling me bad names because of my faith in Jesus. Yeah, uh, it's a very interesting experience. You know, all along you hear Jesus say, "Blessed are you," and they curse you and these kind of things because of who he is and nobody ever cursed me hardly okay maybe a couple times i'm standing and you know i'll saying hey abortion is wrong or something and standing by there and somebody calls you whatever they want to call you right but this is this is the first time that there's been a rather let's say authoritative saying that hey this guy is a whatever a heretic yeah yeah those kinds of things yeah so what are you going to do now do you know yet are you still formulating a plan we're formulating plans yep uh you know there's all kinds of other parts we we have five children one is married our daughter's married and then we have uh, three boys and they're both college age they grew up here they all grew up here and the boys two of my boys want to go into the israeli army you don't become an israeli citizen by virtue of being born here americans think wherever you're born you can be a citizen that's actually quite rare okay usually if you're living overseas you're a citizen of your parents. So my kids were not immediately Israeli citizens. It's difficult to become Israeli unless you're Jewish. But there are some possibilities, and they're in that process right now. There's nothing for sure. My older boys would like to serve in the Israeli military. But then we have two other younger ones. One's 14, one's 9, and they're part of it. We want to make sure they have the right school. I have elderly parents taking them into consideration. This, may, this might be the time that they need somebody closer these kinds of things. So we'll see. We haven't really decided yet, but the time is coming. And what about your congregation? Are you still attending there? Well, it's all very new. So we're actually going to have a short session this weekend. We meet on, on Shabbat here, right? The Israeli congregations basically meet on Shabbat, where we'll announce that I'm no longer an elder and I won't be teaching. So we'll see. Yep. How much of the teaching had you been doing? The first couple of years I did probably the most of it, but most recently, once a month. We, it's a rotating. We don't, have a, we don't have a one pastor. That's not our format here. It's more of a kind of a congregational arrangement, and we have uh, four or five people that, that do the teaching. So I usually have once a month, the last, let's say, last five <clears throat> or ten years, about once a month. Wow. So this is just a huge, huge event in your life, this, this whole thing. Yeah, you could say that, but on the other hand, you know, we're just we're we're just a little little piece of, you know, one humanity, and it's like, okay, how many people know about me and my situation? Let's not let's not make too big of a deal out of it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let me ask you this: What would you say to somebody who is maybe on the fence on who Jesus is, and they've heard a lot of very strong, very charismatic people? saying that you have to believe Jesus is God and that you, you have to believe that he is of the same substance or of the same essence as the Father. And if you don't, then you're no better than Arius and other heretics like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Yet this person is still still considering it. You know, what, what would you say to that kind of a person? Mm -hmm. What does the scripture say? That's, that's the answer. What is the gospel? The scriptures say the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul delineates it. <clears throat> he says, this is the gospel, that Jesus, the Messiah, has died for our sins, that he was buried, and that 
He was raised from the dead. We're just looking at the Easter. It says, God raised him from the dead. This is the, this is the core part of the gospel according to the scriptures. Does the scriptures say if you believe that, you're born of God? There's, a, there's another aspect to the gospel too. You well know. The gospel of the kingdom. The gospel is good news. There's the next age that awaits us. Right? This is Jesus began to preach the gospel of the kingdom, this hope, this expectation that we're to experience this rejuvenated life in the, in the age to come. So that's part of the gospel too. But to enter that kingdom, the belief in God's work through Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, that's the key. Now, that's what the scriptures say. If somebody else is going to add on to that, be careful. Right? If you're going to add on and say, no, you also have to believe whatever, I would say be careful. What does the scripture say? Right? First John 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God. Okay, That's, that's the testimony of the scripture. Whoever believes that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, it's a human being, is born of God. Okay, So that, this is the testimony of the scripture again. Do I believe the scriptures, or am I going to believe what somebody else says is the requirement? That's probably what I would say. Let's see what you think about this comparison. Sometimes I think of it like this. Jesus often found himself in conflict with the Pharisees over their oral traditions and their interpretation of the law, and it seemed like he was pointing out that that's not authoritative. What's authoritative is the actual scripture. And it's like this Trinity idea is this oral interpretation that comes alongside and it says, well, I know we have the scriptures, but you have to interpret them this way. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a fair comparison? I think it is a fair comparison. Yes, I do. Another aspect of that, and some of you guys know this much better than I do, is that the history of the Trinitarian doctrine, quite frankly, is embarrassing. Oh, so embarrassing. and Trinitarians are, this is one of the things that gets me a little bit ticked off. And partly because, as we've talked about before, I mean, even the reason that I'm in Israel is we, to see that the historical base of our faith is strong. It's there. We believe that these are historical events that happen. We're not uh, following the Book of Mormon or something, of made-up stories of this and that. We're looking at histo- real history, and we can see the events of the New Testament, the Old Testament. They're they're sunk right into the the reality of the history of the of the rest of the world. Now, the, the Trinitarian approach or dealing with the history is not honest, right? To say that there has been a continual two thousand year acceptance that Jesus is God in essence, in the flesh, that is dishonest. That's just simply dishonest history. Right. So, I mean, this we, is a, it's a later development. Yeah. The second century is in following. And even then, it wasn't a fully developed, you know, Jesus is equal with God. Of course, he starts out subordinate, and then he develops, and et cetera, et cetera. You got, and like I say, there, there's people that know this much better than I do, and you're one of them. Well, this is an extremely important part of the story. I mean, you and I, we believe in biblical primacy. We believe that Mm -hmm. the Bible comes first, 
the Bible's first, the Bible is authoritative over against whatever creeds humans come up with that are all really just interpretations of the Bible. Which is the knife and which is the thing to be cut? The Bible is the knife. Let it, let it cut mm. away whatever beliefs we have that are like fat on a piece of meat. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then what's left will be able to withstand it. So I, I think that this is just such an important aspect to, to take hold of. But at the same time, it is painful because our beliefs are cherished. They're longstanding. They connect us to grandpa so-and-so and cousin over here and mm-hmm. this denomination that did these amazing things for God 500 years ago or 200 years ago or whatever. But we have to let the Bible be the authority and to be the one that speaks or, or the voices that speak. Well, it's God's voice through it all that speaks mm-hmm. and that judges everything else. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we're no better than any other denomination that sets up some tradition and says, no, we're going to interpret it this way because so long ago, such important people decided that's the way it's going to be. And as Mm -hmm. Protestants, we've resisted that in some ways. But in other ways, this issue wasn't up for debate during that Mm -hmm. Protestant Reformation. And yet here it is today, 500 years later, 501 Mm -hmm. years later. And now Mm -hmm. this is the issue before us today, I believe. Sean, I think that honestly, that most people that would adhere to some way, shape, or form of Trinitarianism, of the Trinity, they intellectually do put it in their mind kind of separate. They know that they didn't come to this message of Jesus by believing in the Trinity first. They heard the message of the Messiah crucified. As Paul said, I came and I wanted to preach nothing among you except Jesus, the Messiah, and him crucified. That's what he was preaching. And that's what I heard when I was a teenager. That's the message I heard. And that is a saving knowledge, right? Now, as days and years and weeks pass, and you begin to hear, okay, who is Jesus and who is God? There's this intellectual, philosophical game, let's call it, and you hear that God is a trinity, but somehow it's, it's segregated from what you, that faith that you have in the death of the Messiah for the forgiveness of sin. So I believe absolutely that, pe- that the gospel has, has gotten through to many people, uh, even though they somehow intellectually kind of keep this idea of a God in three persons right. tucked somewhere in their mind. In many cases, it's not, it doesn't really practically maybe affect them. Yeah, yeah. And not to say there's not some dangers in it, but I, I really do think that for many people, you know, if you think of, uh, I can give many examples of Trinitarianly defined, let's say, as they put in a doctoral statement, organizations, church denominations, etc., that have done good work. And in some ways, I think it's because the message of the gospel still gets through. It can be clouded. There's no doubt. Sometimes it can be clouded. But most people don't present the gospel by saying, you must believe that that Jesus is God. That's not the way it's presented. That's not the way I heard it. The way I heard it was, here's a man that died on the cross. That's what I heard. That's what influenced me. That's what brought me to my knees. I think you're right that this gospel message is, in many people's minds, perhaps even most, 
completely separated from the more complicated doctrine of the Trinity. I, I just mm. think of my mother, for example. She grew up as a Baptist in the South, and she never even believed in the Trinity. I mean, did she go to a Trinitarian church? Sure. She Maybe she heard a, a mention of it here and there, but she just never internalized it. Mm. And uh, I, I think a lot of times that's the... the the state of so many congregations because especially biblical congregations because hmm. if you have a pastor that's preaching through the bible or elders preaching through the bible you're just never going to come across the trinity but very rarely <laughs> only in a passage that you might want to you know you're going to run into the gospel of john where jesus says i and the father are one you can interpret right. that in a right. from a trinitarian perspective but well, it's any, not any, best interpreted from a trinitarian perspective yeah but you're right i see your point is absolutely right you're very rarely going to run into as, a, as an issue. Yeah. Yep. And any exegete worth his salt, may I say, is going to interpret John 10.30, as well as any other verse, in light of its context. Absolutely. And if you look at 27 yep. and 28 and 29, those are the three verses that mm -hmm. come before verse 30, you can see that that oneness between the Father and the Son is functional. They're both caring for the sheep, and mm -hmm. no one can snatch them out of their hand. But that's a side absolutely. Point. That's a side point. That's yep. like one of my biggest pet peeves because it's like, man, if if I was going to believe in the Trinity, that would be like the last verse I would go to, and yet it's always it's always right there in the top five for mm. people. Anyhow, l let me ask you this: there was this YouTube video I saw. I, I can't seem to find it anymore. What happened? To uh -huh. that? Well, I agreed with the fellow that translated. It was part of the elders of my congregation. I wanted to actually talk to him before I put it up. I started to, and then I was called away to the States. So I agree with him that since he, his voice is on there, and it was given in our congregation, that I'd take it down. Right? Okay. So I'll redo it with just English. I got a few other ideas to add in, and I'll, I'll repost it. And I might do it in Hebrew, too, repost it in Hebrew. My Hebrew's not as good. I have to struggle a little bit more. I can do it. It's not going to be perfect Hebrew. But uh, I'll get up there in English sometime soon. Yep. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, once you get that up, send me a link, and I'll uh, put it in the show notes for today so other people can listen to it because it is, it is a really wonderful approach to this whole subject of the Son of God that is very biblical, and it brings in that kingdom flavor that you know, is, is so central to the, the grand scope of Scripture right from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. I mean, the whole thing is about God and his creation and wholeness and fellowship with his people on a renewed world. So um, mm -hmm. I think that's definitely worth people checking out. Let me ask you a couple of quick questions here. Uh, how, how did you ever come across Anthony Buzzard or Restitutio? I saw in your blog post you mentioned it mm -hmm. a couple of us. Was that just through an Internet search? Yes, yep. Once you start to search, it's amazing. Honestly, I'm quite surprised at how many new friends I have now with Facebook and <laughs> yeah. email and so forth. All of a sudden, you see there's a whole new world of people uh, that think similarly. Yeah. Yes, God is doing something in our age. And I, I tell you, like I will uh, be aware of certain movements and groups and individuals, usually independent of each other, that are from all over the, the country and all over the world. And then I'll think to myself, but... I don't know anyone over there in this part of the mm -hmm. world. And then, sure enough, a couple of years pass, and it's like God's been working with this other group independently, and they have come to see the light on this subject, and mm -hmm. they have so many dozens of congregations spread throughout that part of the world. So, I mean, that's just mm -hmm. happened over and over again. And uh, I think this is a truth 
whose time has come. I'm, I'm excited to see how we could partner with you. You could partner with us in different ways and, and, and get the word out together. And mm. All right, Bill. Well, I'll let you go. I appreciate you uh, being willing here. I know we don't know each other, but now we do a little bit. Yep. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Sean. Look forward to meeting you. All right. Take care, Bill. Okay. You too. If you're interested in following Bill Schlegel, you can do so on his blog, which is landandbible.blogspot.co.il, or on YouTube under the username it will be 1000 I've got links to both of these on the show notes for this episode. Also, you can purchase his Satellite Bible Atlas on Amazon. And I also found some official statements from the Masters University about Bill that I posted on this episode as well, if you want to check those out as far as what ended up happening, specifically who was involved, and and more importantly, the various doctrinal statements that Masters put out in refutation of the one God position. So take a look at those. If you believe, like I do, that Schlegel's story needs to get out, then please Share this episode on social media. Share it on your own feed. Share it in groups. Share it on pages so that other people can hear that this this is not some wacko. Schlegel is not some heretic. He's not, he's not really promoting anything. He's just trying to honestly pursue truth wherever it leads, biblically, faithfully, and to do that in a way that's respectful. He didn't try to convert the whole school or the students. He didn't try to start a movement and divide his satellite institution from Master Seminary. No, he, he, he carried himself in a manner of integrity and humility. And I feel like this is an example to all of us. But at the same time, this message needs to get out that there is a truth whose time has come. Enough of the scare tactics and the, the bullying Let's have an honest discussion about the, these things and see what where God leads us, because in the end, the truth has nothing to fear. We'll see you next time. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app so you get the next episode in your sleep, and thanks for listening.